Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for pets. It's an uncertain time for many of us, and Trupanion wants to help ease concerns by sharing their knowledge with the animal community. They've formed a COVID Council of Veterinarians dedicated to hosting webinars and helping to answer pet owners' questions. Trupanion is committed to helping pets, whether that's through distributing information or ensuring their team remains operating at full capacity to process your claims. If you're a breeder, they also have a program that allows you to send your litters home with a special offer so you can have peace of mind and you know that your puppies are covered in their new homes. You can learn more by following the link at the website, puredogtalk.com. Don't forget to tell them Pure Dog Talk sent you. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and you guys, I'm super excited. I have had a number of requests for more herding dog interviews and people and stuff. And as always, your wish is my command. And thanks to one of our great patrons, Karen Cowdery, I was able to connect with Janina Lauren, who is just a legend in the Belgian breeds. And I am so honored that you are joining our podcast. So thank you, Janina. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. That was quite an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's important that people understand that they're in the presence of greatness. So that's all I'm saying. (laughs) So give us a little bit of 411, honey. Give us your background, what brought you to purebred dogs and to Tervern and all of that good stuff. Oh, well, we've never not owned a purebred dog, I can honestly say. So originally, my mother had a German Shepherd, and that was our original first love. And she came to the United States with that dog. And we originally went to German Shepherd specialties, and I competed there in the regular show ring and did most of my junior handling years at German Shepherd specialties. And then switched over when we became more active with the Belgian Tavern. And we got to those. And it's really a legendary story at this point. My parents owned a restaurant and the Frito-Lay delivery man had a dog he didn't want. And it was a Belgian Tavern five-year-old male. And that was the first Tavern that came into our life. And what year would that have been? Ish late 1950s, early 1960s, Wow! right at the beginning, mm-hmm. because they took that dog and then later contacted his breeder and bought a female. And they were both from New Mexico, from Barb and Barbara Crone, who are early legends in the breed and were responsible for, with Rudy Robinson, for bringing the breed into the country and really moving the Belgian breed forward in the United States and forming the clubs. Wow. So they took those two to the forerunners of a national, it was really supported shows in Kankakee, Illinois, and promptly won. <laughs> well, the first year they went, they did not win. I should clarify that. They went, 
they were both immigrants. Their English was not well. And someone told them their dog needed coat conditioning and they should put some Vaseline in it. But they didn't clarify and something got lost in translation and they smothered him in Vaseline. So they didn't win that year. And they vowed to go back and never lose again. So the next year they went back and they won the four running show, the supportive show, I guess you could call it back then. So, and the rest is history. So my mother bred those two dogs together three times and produced the Chateaublanc A, B, and C litter, which are very famous in their own right. They went on themselves to do substantial winning in the early days and produced very well. And at one time you could say most of the top winning dogs as it was back in the day, and the breed was relatively new and unknown and competed in the working group. So a group four was was huge. huge. That was huge. (laughs) So they were big winners back then. Right. And her first homebred champion came from the A litter and I'm second generation and my sister Darlene is also very active and shows as well and judges in the herding trials. And I have since gone on to judge the herding group, some working breeds and a non-sporting group breed and hope to finish the working and non-sporting group now that I'm going to be soon retired. And your mother, Edeltraud, yes? No, you did that very well. Yes, Edeltraud. <laughs> close, close. Emigrated from? Well, she married a GI, so okay. she came from Germany. Okay. And when the Americans marched in after the war was over for restoration, they were knights in shining armor, and she and my aunt, both married handsome men and came to the United States. A beautiful story. I love that. I have a little bit of goosebumps. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, I love these stories. I think it's important. This is something I say all the time. And I think that it is critical that people know where their dog judges came from. They were not just hatched from eggs. Everyone has an origin story, and there are many amazing origin stories in dogs, and this is one of them. So I love that. Why the Traverne? So the Traverne, the Groendal, the Malinois, and the Lakenois, the four Belgian breeds here. Right. But in Europe, they are one breed. Is that correct? Am I understanding that right? Yeah, one breed variety. So why did we end up with the Belgian Tavern? After my mother's German Shepherd passed away, and for years, that was the only oil painting of a dog that hung in our house. Mm. She didn't think she could ever own anything that could come close to him again. So when the dog was offered to her from the Frito-Lay man, she liked it. And she liked his temperament. She liked his behavior. He was not that far off from what a German Shepherd could be in terms of still being within the same family of temperament and behavior. And she embraced it. So we went from there. Love it. And did you ever own any of the other breeds, any of the other Belgian breeds? No, they've passed through our home. However, (laughs) we have not owned any of those. We have done very quietly on the slide quite a bit of Belgian Malinois rescue. In fact, my sister has done probably the most of anybody, and it's mostly military contract dogs that seem to get dumped. So we've had those pass through here and been placed. But Belgian Tavern has been the primary one of state. 
We have had German Shepherds come through here. We've had Labrador Retrievers. Oh. We have a Skipper Key currently. You can hear barking in the background. It had to be a Skipper Key. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my gosh. But we've concentrated on breeding showing. On and the Traverne. On the Traverne. Okay. So let's talk a little bit because I think this is really, really interesting. And I have a little smattering of acquired by osmosis from Karen sort of knowledge <laughs> about the Belgian breeds. Oh God, I forgot. We've had noobs run through here too. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. That's an odd drooling group to add to the Traverne. <laughs> Let's talk about in Belgium, the four breeds and sort of how they got their names and the different things that they did and how it impacted how they developed as individual breeds here in the States. Well, yeah, that's a long story. Yes. In Belgium, there were three little towns, and the Belgian sheepdog was known as the Grunendal, mm-hmm. and the Tavern, the Tavern, and the Belgian Malinois, the Malinois, and then the Lacanois. So a brewer was breeding. So they developed coats and colors, and they became varieties. So the Grunendal, the black, the Belgian sheepdog, was really the more popular and preferred one. And then there was the Belgian Tavern, which was mahogany, rich fawn, sandy colored, gray. And then there was the Belgian Melanois, which was the same look as the Belgian Tavern, but short coated. Mm-hmm. And then there was the very tousled Belgian Lacanois, which is almost a wiry coat of sorts. Mm-hmm. So they should pretty much look like an unmade bed. <laughs> the ones I've seen do. <laughs> And so looking at the four breeds, they're definitely four breeds in the U.S., definitely similar style, similar type of dogs, but they also have temperament and sort of personality distinctions, don't they? To some degree. So the basic difference between all of them is coat and color. And if you judge, the disqualifications between them are also a little bit different, but the basic premise is the same. They should look like Belgian breeds. Mm -hmm. So they should all be elegant. You should all recognize them for what they are. And I always say that if you see them in the field, regardless of which one they are, they should take your breath away with stand-up elegance and alertness and confidence. And that's critical to all of what the Belgians are. And then for the Belgian Tavern, I think initially so many people came to the breed because of their color. Mm-hmm. Because when the sun hits that mahogany and black or rich fawn, it is just striking. And what could be more beautiful than a rich black coat? And the same for the Malinois. And the same for the Lacanois, even though they're tousled, they certainly have elegance about them. And they're all very sturdy. So temperament-wise, I would say the temperament is basically the same on all of them. The personalities may be slightly different. I attribute all of that to individual breeding and the direction of where the breeders have taken their dogs. Okay. So as I said, all of them should be confident. If any of them were more drivey, would be the Malinois because it's so extensively used for military and protection work. And to some degree, the others are as well but not as much as the Malinois. So what I like to say, a common characteristic between all of them is not so much high drive, the Malinois being bred for military work notwithstanding, 
is biddability. And that's the most critical factor for someone who's looking for a family pet or a show dog or a companion is that they are biddable. They want to work with you. They want to do things for you. And it is up to you as the owner to embrace that and make it stronger. So it's up to the owner to bring out the best in each dog. Right. That's really the point I want to get across. And I Mm -hmm. always tell people that, no, they don't need to be consistently trained, but they do need to be trained and they do need to be kept active. And what does active look like? So all of them are great for people that are active themselves, whether that means running, jogging, walking, playing ball, teaching them to carry the newspaper, get the mail for you, find something in a drawer. It doesn't need to look formal if it doesn't have to. But if you're interested in any of the competitive events, obedience, agility, scent work, tracking, certainly, they excel. They excel in all of those things. We have a very compassionate group that does herding, search and rescue work. And there is a small group that I am not particularly familiar with, but there is a dedicated group that does protection work. Right. And I have noticed, I have a personal pet project about best in show winning dual champions and in all of the breeds that have a show champion and a performance championship. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed is the Belgian breeds are ridiculous in the number of not just dual champions, but triple champions and quadruple champions and like quintuple. I mean, it's just insanity the amount of things that these dogs are very skilled at. That's true. They like to do things and all our owners are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) They will do as much as their dogs will let them do. I mean, the dogs are very active. They want to work and they have heart. Mm -hmm. So whether they should be doing all those things or not, if you ask them, (laughs) they generally will do it for you. And they'll do it for you as often as you want. They are, however, smart enough that if you're going to tell them 14 times in a row to sit, the 15th time they might tell you, up yours, I'm not doing it anymore. Wasn't it perfect? We did that already. I'm over it. Can we go on to something else? And move right. on. Mm-hmm. But they're not as busy, like busy, 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 like some of the herding breeds that I'm associated with. No, they have off switches. I would argue that if you treat them like any normal dog, if you're a normal dog person and you do your usual mile work and then you play ball and then you do Mm -hmm. some training and they're helping you in the yard or helping you around the house, then you've got to find dogs. They're not so high strung that they're sitting there with their tongues out and their eyes crossed like, let's go do something, let's go do something, let's go do something. That's sort of my impression as well. And they were, and we sort of skipped over, and I'm going to track back to it because we're talking about this particular piece. They were herding dogs. Yes, they moved sheep primarily. Am I remembering right? Yes. So in the early 1800s, you could say that they were all around farm dog. And their primary purpose was generally sheep and some cattle. And when you look at what Belgium might have looked like back in the 1800s, that They had to walk their dog and sheep down the lane to the field for the day and then walk them back. So they did a lot of border herding. Mm -hmm. And then they had to keep them under control in the farm area. 
The Lacanois, while it was generally known as a hooding dog, however, its primary duty was to guard the linen, the beautiful linen of the Belgian people and the Flemish people. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's their job. And so I would say that the Belgian breeds as whole are like most herding breeds in that they're aloof. They'll recognize you, but really they love their owners and they love their family. And I always tell judges, don't look for that cute, wagging, golden retriever mush. They'll accept your exam like any herding dog, but they may not put their ears up for you because their ears are for their owner. So much like, you know, when you're looking or judging corgis, why force any dog to look at you? Why don't you just look at their expression over the shoulder of the person that's handling them? Because they're adoring their handler. They don't care about you. You're fine. But <laughs> really. That. No, I love that. That's great. And I think it's a really good instruction for judges because as a retired handler, I constantly catch myself like trying to get the expression myself. I'm like, Laura, you just need to knock that off. <laughs> Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, folks. 2020 has, to put it mildly, presented some challenges for all of us. You know, the good news, our patrons' numbers are still growing almost daily. I truly, truly cannot thank all of you enough for your support. It's been overwhelming. And for those of you who've had to reassess your budgets, please know I totally get it. And I will always be grateful for your belief in this program and the power of great content. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you every day to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tack box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. Our patrons make all of this possible. The funds are specifically designated only for overhead. They literally keep the MP3s rolling. Meanwhile, the patrons-only After Dark Facebook Live and Zoom meetings each month truly have been a fabulous success. Conversation, support, laughter, some education, some mentorship, lots of encouragement, and even, randomly, the occasional adult beverage. So click the link at www.puredogtalk.com and become a patron today. Your small contribution helps make a huge voice for purebred dogs. And Lacanois, finally, right, are going to be AKC full recognition this summer, like right now. July 1st. Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. Very exciting. They have worked very hard for that. And Mm -hmm. I'm actually judging their first national specialty in Virginia, if it happens. It's right if it happens. And Doswell, so I hope it happens. Oh, my gosh. But, yes, they've worked. It's been a long haul. They probably should have been in sooner, but they didn't quite have the numbers. Okay. And talk to us a little bit about the breed as a whole or the individual breeds or the group or what have you. They're not a huge number breed, any of them, anywhere, are they? No, in fact, I believe the Belgian Sheepdog and I believe the Belgian Malinois are on the low entry list, mm-hmm. but the Belgian Tavern is not. And I don't understand why. I mean, I could speak to the Northeast 
we were a hotbed at one time for Belgian sheepdog breeders, particularly, and most of them have aged out or moved south, but mostly I want to say they've aged out or are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. So they're one of the best kept secrets by and large, I think all of them. And the Belgian breeders, all four breeds, are very careful of where they sell their dogs to. And I think by and large, people like to keep it somewhat of a secret (laughs) because you need to put the effort in like with any herding and working dog early on. And once you establish boundaries and training and behavior, that's great. But what happens is most people underestimate how much effort they need to put in to be consistent. And training good behavior, and then sadly you get the dog back or it gets turned into the shelter. Mm -hmm. So curiosity question with your national assignment coming up. I have only run into a couple of the Lake and Law, but they seem to be somewhat heavier stationed all the way around, heavier boned, heavier headed. I mean, still with the same basic outline. Is that just simply the ones I've seen or is that consistent throughout the breed? Well, we'll find out. I think they're a little bit more (laughs) robust. We'll find out, won't we? (laughs) They're a little bit more robust. And Mm -hmm. I think that their coat and coat texture, that whole look, makes them appear heavier than they may be. But they are a robust dog. All of them call for oval-shaped bone. Nobody calls for, you know, round bone. So the underlying structure on all of them is pretty much the same. Right, right, right. Interesting. So of all the breeds, I would argue that the Lake and Law was the most adversely affected and is still the smallest of the population between the four of them worldwide. Right. And when they're beautiful, they are beautiful. Mm-hmm. So when you look at them, they should distinctly remind you of a Belgian. They should not remind you of a Bouvier, for example. Right. Or any other of those kind of dogs that are rough-coated like that in the herding group. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the development of this breed, the brewer who was breeding them, do they have a sense as to sort of founding breeds or was sort of like the local sheepdog that did whatever? Or what's the history like? What do we know about that? Well, I think originally you could argue that they wanted their own Belgian shepherd dog. The Germans had the German Shepherd, you know, the Border Collie and the Collie-like dogs were elsewhere and they wanted their own dog. And that's kind of what was the premise for it. The thing that I think is really, really interesting when we look at these both as a group of four and then compare them out to the other herding breeds, I think it is fascinating how true they are within each other and how distinct primarily really from the rest of the herding breeds. Can you identify, is it breeding programs? Is it the focus from Belgium originally? What would you think you would attribute that to? I don't know that they're all that different. Really? I don't know. They're a square breed. Mm-hmm. Their functionality is not that much different than so many of the others in the herding group. Interesting. It just to me, my eyes are so distinct. What do you find that distinct? Maybe it's different? the elegance. It's the whole, that picture, right? That arch of neck, the neck into shoulder, the flow of the breed to me. I mean, collies are very distinct unto themselves. 
and the Belgian breeds very much are distinct, and they're definitely not a German Shepherd. I mean, if you're talking from a judge's perspective. From a judge's perspective, they will never look like a German Shepherd. There is no way right. they can because they're structured differently. They're a square dog. And even when we talk about, all four standards talk about, which is maybe slightly longer. So when we talk about slightly longer, we're really only talking about put your fingers to the edge of your counter. Mm -hmm. It's just the tiny little tips that go over. That's slightly, it's not, your whole (laughs) finger can go over and then they're, you know, as long as a German Shepherd or as long as, you know, rectangular. They're not supposed to be rectangular. Right. Maybe that's the piece, the square piece that stands out in my mind. Yes. Not coming from the herding breeds. To me, I think that's it. Yeah. When they are beautiful, they are stunning. Mm-hmm. And I think when you are in breeds that need to be square and need to be functional and need to have pretty expressions and heads, mm-hmm. to put that all together as a breeder is difficult. But when it happens, you're going to give somewhere a little bit, but right. when it happens, it's just striking. Nice. I think that's the biggest challenge that we have as breeders, no matter which one you're in, is that you need a square dog that moves appropriately for a square animal and looks beautiful. Right. So speaking sort of to the person who might be considering adding either a Traverne or one of the Belgian breeds to their family, health, longevity, all of that kind of stuff. They're long lived. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have one that's 15 and a half in my house and I have litters where they've lived to 15 and 16. So I would plan for that unless something health wise happens along the way that would cause an early death. You can generally plan for 12 to 15 right. is a very nice average. The males sometimes go a little sooner at the early end, perhaps mm-hmm. of 12 years instead of 15, but That's generally a good long life for them. Mm -hmm. Health-wise, I like to say that we are generally a very healthy breed. We are plagued by many of the same things as other breeds. We did have a bout with epilepsy in the breed, and that is an inherent defect, if you'd like to call it that. Mm -hmm. And we are still very carefully trying to breed away from it, as difficult as it may be. And we do occasionally have bouts of cancer. We have had recent travesty of stomach cancer within our Mm -hmm. breed, but by and large, it's a very healthy breed. Right. I knew the epilepsy piece and that seemed like that was about the only thing I'd ever really heard in terms of a thing to worry about or to be aware of when you were looking. So, okay. Anything else that you would like to share about your absolutely fabulous breed that you think is critical for people to know? Oh, I think it's critical to know that they are not pack animals, that they don't do well owning 20 or 30 of them or keeping them in kennels without human interaction. And while you can say that for so many breeds, they are quite sensitive. And since they are so biddable, the more that you interact and work with them in whatever capacity you consider that to be, you will have a fine dog. Nice. And they get along pretty well, don't they, amongst each other, running them in a group, right? No major dog aggression that I've ever really encountered, is there? I would say by and large that they get along well. Okay. I've owned bitches. I've owned males. I don't own them together. They all seem to get along. They accept other breeds. And like anything else, it's all in the introduction. 
Right. We don't have dog fights that are national. We occasionally right. have very stand-up young males sure. that haven't realized <laughs> life yet. Right. They're just like teenage boys. It's okay. <laughs> right. Teenage boys. I mean, it's not like some of the more working guardy dogs. Right. That, right, right, right. That you should be cognizant of how you place them in the ring. That's really mm-hmm. not an issue for us. Okay. And, you know, we have some that are a little more bold than others, but by and large, it's not a breed where you have to worry with your clenched hand on the leash that they're going to attack anything going down the line. Eye contact. Ah, <laughs> I shoot a lot of Akitas. Trust me, I understand these things. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, I was at the Akita National a couple of years ago, and I was pleasantly surprised that the males were, they were quite nice. <laughs> Nicely behaved. It's come a long way. I was at the Akita National in 1990. Oh my God, seven or eight. I don't remember which. It was in Chicago in this high rise hotel that the elevator wasn't working. And so everybody was going up and down 20 flights of these three foot wide stairs with their male Akitas next to each other. It was the year Annie Clark judged, and a dog fight literally broke out in the best breed ring. <laughs> it's a different world. It is a different world. Annie was pushing up her sleeves to break up the fight when somebody dropped a catalog from like the balcony above the show ring in the hotel. It was, it was an interesting year. Yeah. I think all of them are beautiful. And while I particularly have a special place for Belgian Tavern since I have them mostly, I do find that they're underrepresented in terms of group placings and best in shows. I don't know why that is. I don't. As a judge, to other judges, I can't figure out what's the difference. You know, if you have a beautiful Belgian in there and you have an ex-dog with a significant breed fault for its breed, how does that place or win the group and you ignore something that is of beautiful quality, but maybe with an owner handler, I don't know if that's the difference or not, but I can't say because we owner handler, we've been okay. (laughs) You did okay. (laughs) We did all right. (laughs) We did all right. Yeah, I mean, you know, legitimately, I think I see that. And many of the groups as a handler, I saw it all the time. I showed primarily low entry breeds and an amazing wire haired pointer will be beaten by an average golden retriever nine times out of 10. It's a fact. So there you go. Yeah. So in the post-COVID world, we're going to change that. <laughs> we're going to change that. <laughs> I love this plan. Excellent. Let's have a committee. <laughs> I think we need a committee. <laughs> I think you're right. Oh my God, we're definitely dog people that have been home too long. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I can't, you know, we should change that. So here's the thing what happens though in these low entry breeds, or particularly in the Belgian breeds, is that the people will leave. They just won't come back. Right. So right. what they end up doing is, which is why our national specialties are insane, is that they'll go off into all the performance events. Right. So they'll finish right. their dog championship and off they go to agility and right. everything else and not mm-hmm. come back, which then deprives judges and spectators the opportunity to see some beautiful dogs that do work. It's just that they don't come back. Yeah. That's the end of them. And I think that that's something that people need to kind of hear really in a lot of breeds or owner handlers or what have you. I have a huge owner handler listenership and guys hear it. If you have a great dog, you may not win that day. And Janina and I were talking before we started the podcast. I was telling her the story about my one and only time I ever won the herding group with a nine-month-old Briard puppy. 
And I didn't want to stay. And I was a big, tough professional handler. And I didn't want to be there until the very last group. And guess what? He won the group. So the only way you know you're not going to win is if you're not there. That's right. You never know. Absolutely. We never went home. When my mother started, she and my aunt took our male and female to 65 shows with no competition. (laughs) Just so (laughs) judges and spectators could see what they were. Right. And today... I will go show and the group judge may not do anything for me, but I'm staying (laughs) because it could be that day that something grand happens. I agree with you. It is absolutely about education. And if the judges can't get their hands on good dogs and be educated to the quality, how are they supposed to, it's like anything else. How can anybody do better if they aren't given the opportunity to learn more? Yeah, we have those Nancy Downers in our breeds, and some of it may be legitimate because they don't do a lot of winning. And I always argue, make sure your dog is well-trained, well-groomed, and so are you. Right. Presentation is important, people. It's important. You just have to. It's not always political. And the only way to make it unpolitical is to make yourself so competitive they can't ignore you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, listeners, is the best advice you're going to get today. <laughs> well, Janina, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm really so grateful. I've enjoyed this tremendously. And I look forward to seeing you in a post-COVID world, my friend. This was a lot of fun. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.